This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome. My name is Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm Director of Technology and Social Media for World Beyond War, a global grassroots network advocating for the abolition of war and its replacement with a just and sustainable peace. My regular co-host, Greta Zaro, couldn't be here today, so I'm also joined by Alex McAdams, Director of Development for World Beyond War. Hi, Alex. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Today's episode is all about No War 2020, World Beyond War's upcoming fifth global convergence in Ottawa, Canada, which will be this May 26th through 31st. We're timing the conference to coincide with CANSEC, Canada's biggest weapons expo, to bring international attention to Canada's complicity in the global arms trade. Also, No War 2020 is the product of a truly global effort. We're working hand-in-hand with dozens of allies, including 350Org, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, and Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, to pull together this week of education and nonviolent action. So let's introduce today's guests. Katie Perfett is a national organizer with 350.org, supporting people-powered movements across Canada organizing to tackle the climate crisis. She first got involved with community organizing during her time living in Halifax with Divest Dow, a campaign to get Dalhousie University to divest their endowment from the world's top 200 oil and gas companies. Since then, she's been involved to keep fossil fuels in the ground, including training hundreds of people to take nonviolent direct action at the gates of the Kinder Morgan facility on Burnaby Mountain. Katie believes that through community, art, and the practice of storytelling, we can build the kind of people-powered movements we need to take down the fossil fuel industry. Great to have you here, Katie. Thanks. Really glad to be here. Colin Stewart is now in his mid-70s and has been active in his adult life in the peace and justice movements. He lived in Thailand for two years during the Vietnam War and there came to understand the importance of active opposition to war and the place of compassion, especially in finding a place for war resistors and refugees in Canada. Colin also lived for a time in Botswana. While working there, he played a small part in supporting movement and labor activists in the struggle against the racist regime in South Africa. For 10 years, Colin taught a variety of courses in politics, cooperatives and community organizing in Canada and internationally in Asia and East Africa. Colin has been both a reservist and active participant with Christian Peacemaker Team's actions in Canada and Palestine. He has worked at the grassroots in Ottawa, both as a researcher and organizer. His primary continuing concerns in the context of the climate crisis are Canada's insidious place in the weapons trade, particularly as an accomplice to U.S. corporate and state militarism, and the urgency of reparations and restoration of indigenous lands to indigenous people. Colin has academic degrees in arts, education, and social work. He is a Quaker in his 50th year of marriage, has two daughters and a grandson. Wow, that's some resume. Well, great to have you here, Colin. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I'm now going to introduce Alex McAdams. This is Alex's first time co-hosting this podcast. Um, Alex, you are also Mm -hmm. in Canada today. I am. Yeah, I'm in Manitoba. 
And we do hope everybody who listens will think about joining our annual conference in Ottawa. Alex. Thanks for joining us, Katie and Colin. I want to start things off by acknowledging what's happening in Canada right now, specifically regarding the Wet'suwet'en people. In a highly militarized situation, the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for our non-Canadian listeners, has been forcibly removing Wet'suwet'en peoples from their homes over a battle against a controversial fracked gas pipeline path, which is the, co- the coastal gas link pipeline. After the police's highly militarized invasion of the Wet'suwet'en territory, hundreds of solidarity protests have been springing up across Canada in support of the Wet'suwet'en people. I know they're happening here where I am in Manitoba and that you both have been really involved with the campaign, organizing and participating in solidarity actions in Ottawa. For our listeners who may not be aware of what's happening in Canada, can you talk about the campaign and your involvement in it? Sure, yeah, I actually saw Colin yesterday uh, there was a solidarity action that happened here in Ottawa, and it was really great to see him. Yeah, so exactly like Alex said, um, the Wet'suwet'en people, this is the second time in, in the course of about a year that the Wet'suwet'en uh, nation has, has been raided by the RCMP. So around this time last year, the RCMP invaded, uh, and they were doing that for Coastal GasLink, uh, for a pipeline company that wanted to move a pipeline through unceded territory. So the kind of relationship between uh, Indigenous people and the federal government in this country is a really complex one. Uh, So I won't, I'm not going to get into it in a lot of depth, but this is to say that the Supreme Court of Canada did rule that the Wet'suwet'en people have jurisdiction over their land and also the neighboring nation, the Kixan nation. And so the Wet'suwet'en do actually have jurisdiction over 22,000 hectares of land. And so the, the fact that the RCMP with the support of the federal government and the provincial government of BC are moving in um, and doing that for a, the coastal gasoline pipeline is extrajudicial. They're doing it illegally. Um, and so what we saw a few weeks ago was uh, a heavily armed RCMP group do this again, doing the raiding to try to um, intimidate and uh, criminalize peaceful people protecting their, their homelands, the lands that their ancestors have been protecting, taking care of, and that are critical to their culture and survival. And so the fact that this is happening right now is, it's an extension of what's been going on um, for, to Indigenous people for the past 300 years in Canada. You know, as long as Indigenous people have jurisdiction over their lands, that means that uh, a lot of companies and um, a lot of companies may not get to make the money they want to make. And the federal government doesn't have the kind of control that they want to have over uh, over the entire country of Canada. So that's been what's going on. And of course, we've just seen a massive proliferation of resistance across the country. And that's what Colin and I were up to yesterday. Um, I've been involved locally. Um, it's actually, it's, it's kind of emerged as a new group. There's a crew of probably about a dozen uh, women um, of a, like mixed backgrounds. So some of us are settler identity, some, many are indigenous um, and women of color uh, and, and non-binary folks of color. 
uh, coming together to uh, work together to create some some moments in Ottawa uh, to really put eyes on what's happening in, in Wet'suwet'en and also what's happening in other parts of the country where the RCMP or provincial police are moving in to uh, dismantle um, peaceful um, peaceful expressions of solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, so in Taidanega as well, where uh, Mohawk uh, organizers have been near the railway tracks shutting down the rails. Um, so we're really trying to organize in solidarity with that and bring attention to it. So I've been really involved with a core group of uh, young women and non-binary folks in the city trying to organize um, to bring people together in a really good way to shed a light on what's happening. Um, my, my background, I came to organizing from more of a climate perspective, but I'd be happy to, to talk a little bit more about where I see the synergies between um, Indigenous rights and sovereignty and the climate issue. Um, and of course, there's a lot of connections between Indigenous sovereignty and surveillance and, um, and surveillance and militarization on behalf of the state. So interested to explore that on this podcast uh, if we have the time. But yeah, my role is as, as an organizer um, to support young people to be able to take action in ways that uh, feel empowering and that are also safe uh, because yeah, it's, um, I mean, what we saw yesterday was that when native people and people of color organize, they're met with a lot more intimidation tactics and surveillance than uh, you know, your average climate march. So yeah, just helping them in that way. So that's been my role. Of course, I said I like I really like storytelling and art as well. So trying to bring in those elements too. But I think first and foremost for this is like letting my capacity as someone who has a lot of privilege um, and to be able to like support them to feel safe. One thing that you said that I think is worth pointing out that the resistance being met by the militarized, highly armed police is a nonviolent one of, you know, the land defenders and water defenders is nonviolent being met with such aggression. I think that's a really important yeah. element to point out as well. Colin, do you want to talk a bit about your role? Yes, Katie's absolutely right. I, I really appreciate what she's saying. Uh, yesterday, there were, uh, I'm not sure of the exactly the numbers, but it was, it was into the four figures, the thousands rather than hundreds. Um, when we were protesting in front of the House of Commons and um, various departments of government, every time we stopped, um, the first chant, the first thing that the leaders, largely women, largely young, um, would say was, ask after us, say this, um, we are peaceful, number one. Two, we are unarmed. And three, we are in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en people um, and their struggle in British Columbia, the westernmost province of Canada. I found that incredibly moving, and I think it speaks to where the one point, not the only point of convergence between the Indigenous struggle and the longtime peace struggle, uh, opposition to war and to weapons of war, I'm going to mention two things. Part of it's personal. My first acquaintance with this and the struggle between and the, the confrontation of war and people was in fact in northeastern Thailand back in the 1970s, early, late, late 60s and early 70s when I was living there as a volunteer. 
Um, it's hard to describe a wartime situation, but um, Kissinger and company were bombing, bombing Laos, and I was fairly close to the Laotian border, and there were refugees coming across. That, all of these refugees were indigenous people, Laotian people, tribal people. Um, the courage with which they, they faced this situation was remarkable. I won't go into details, but that was my first experience of it. A second experience came somewhat later, and I, I could mention others, but this one I think is particularly poignant in the Canadian context. I'm going back to the mid-1980s and probably into the early 90s. The people of, the Innu people of Labrador on the far east coast of Canada were faced with a huge dilemma. NATO and the Canadian government, as a member of NATO, were trying to establish uh, number one, a weapons training or a weapons testing uh, range. And they were, they were under pressure NATO, from NATO to increase overflights and in particularly low level, um, low level flights by fighter jets. The Innu people, very few of us have actually been up there, but it's, it's incredibly tranquil and quiet. It's a difficult life hunting, fishing, trapping. Um, to hear a jet come in at a subsonic level at 100 feet or 150 feet above literally can kill animals. The noise is horrendous. In fact, their whole life was, was being totally disturbed by these weapons, weapons testing and, and the overflights by NATO jets, some from Germany, some from England, some from Canada. What's remarkable about this is what the Innu did over a period of years. They actually went in near Goose Bay and occupied a, a weapon, a NATO airbase. And they did that in, through a, they did that over a series of period of time. It was in some respects remarkably similar to what's happened in Wet'suwet'en territory in, in British Columbia. They occupied it and they were persistent. And they were arrested in the tens. I don't know what the total numbers were, probably 40 or 50 people. Um, and over time, effectively, what they were able to do was to, to uh, get the base reduced, to reduce the overflights, and in fact, in the end, get rid of them, and the weapons testing particularly. But the courage, number one, number two, and the persistence and the willingness to take a direct action. They actually took their tents and their belongings and they just went out and planted them on the runways. Um, to me, that was an incredibly impressive experience. My role in that was obviously very, very limited. I was in Ottawa at the time and we were just part of a support group. But it was the, it was the one point at where the whole weapons and war issue Confront, were confronted directly with courage and with persistence um, by the Innu people <clears throat> in, in Labrador. And one has to look at the history of this, um, the history of colonialism in the country. Um, and this courage and persistence has, has been there for the 300 odd years of colonialism. Um, Canada, as we know it today, um, is in fact, in some respects, some ways, a product of, of the 
a reaction to the resistance that was put up in Manitoba by Louis Riel to, to, uh, to the to militarization and occupation as going west. So we're part of a long history, and I'm sure most of the American listeners are aware as, as of the, the, hopefully are aware of the facts of, of the, the equally brutal, sometimes much more brutal, um, occupation of, of American indigenous territories. To me, the link between the weapons question and the indigenous question is sometimes obscured by state propaganda. Sometimes it's, it's just not so clear, but for me, it's very, very clear, both from the Vietnam or the Laotian and Thai experience and from, from more recent experience here in Canada. <clears throat> And that, of course, includes the current Wet'suwet'en struggle, which uh, we're not out of yet. It's going to continue. And I can only stand back in admiration for the courageous, particularly Indigenous women, but not only women, um, who have resisted this.
we are at the intersection of several movements, indigenous rights and the rights of the voiceless, the rights of people of any type, whether for gender, identity, or any other reason are are taken advantage of by the governments that are supposed to represent them. We are also here representing the climate change awareness movement and anti-war. I know for the four of us here, this is one movement. We are all working together for the same thing. And there's really complete harmony between the goals of all these movements is something I just, I'm glad that word is getting out. With that said, let's talk about CANSEC. This is actually something, as a non-Canadian, I'm not very aware of what CANSEC is. What is CANSEC and why are we protesting it? CANSEC is a kind of meaningless acronym, but it doesn't mean Canadian security, I suppose, is the, what it stands for. But it's, it really is Canadian insecurity. Its roots lie in the Canadian Association of the Defense and Security Industries, a group called CADSE, which is some eight or 900 industries in Canada, some of them security, um, surveillance related, um, a lot of them weapons related. The bigger ones, of course, being subsidiaries of U.S. companies, Boeing, um, Lockheed Martin, and so on and so forth. They gather roughly in April. And they sit down with officials from the Canadian government and say, look, uh, what can we sell you? And the Department of Defense and a number of other departments in Canada sit with them and say, well, we have so much money and here's what we think we need for Canada's, quote, defense, unquote, which in fact is more related to NATO and war making. That CADSI group sponsors and supports, <clears throat> along with significant government departments, um, the Canadian or CANSEC, the annual trades fair, which trade so-called trade fair, which this year is occurring between May 27th and 28th in a rather isolated place close to the Ottawa airport, which provides us with some difficult difficulties, but also some possibilities. What is the general awareness among typical or average Canadian people about the need to protest the the weapons bazaars like CANSEC. What is the mood? As an American living in New York City, I could answer the question, what is the mood in New York City? But I'd really like to know, especially since I will be going to Ottawa for the first time in my life in a few months, what is the general feeling about these types of issues that we are talking about? I think one thing that really tends to be in people's minds is the this kind of perception uh, this erroneous perception that Canada is a country that brings peace to the world and is a peaceful country. And so to me, I feel like we have a lot of work to do to tell the story about the connections between, uh, for example, how conflict fuels climate emissions, how the fossil fuel industry works with military to ensure that they can extract resources um, and how Indigenous peoples, not only in Canada, but around the world, are being surveilled, intimidated, and ultimately criminalized for protecting their lands. Um, and the, those, those kind of connections, I feel like, I'm, when, when, Kensec, uh, when I heard about Kensec happening in Ottawa, and I heard that there was going to be this big global conference that was focusing on disarmament, demilitarization, and um, divestment, um, that was really exciting to me because I, I really feel like those 
linkages between different social movements, but also the linkages between how, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry aids and abeds the settler colonial state, which um, is criminalizing indigenous peoples, which is on and on and on. I feel like that's the, the story we really need to be telling in this moment, um, because they are so interlinked. And to me, what's really promising is that yesterday, we had, um, not only was there an action uh, about the Wet'suwet'en, what was happening in Wet'suwet'en territory, but there were also um, climate strikers, young people from across the country who came to Ottawa to call on the prime minister and his cabinet to reject the Tech Frontier mine, which is the largest tar sands mine to ever be proposed. And uh, not that we were expecting this to happen because 200 young people came to Ottawa, but the night before they were going to start a hunger strike on the hill, the Tech Frontier Mind actually revoked their um, application for the project. And they cited, you know, there were economic reasons for it. The economic climate globally was um, meant that they this project was no longer viable. But let's be really clear, the reason that they revoked that permit is because of the pressure of social movements saying that unleashing the carbon in the largest tar sands mine ever proposed is an act of war to people around the world because of the kind of uh, violence and devastation those kind of climate impacts would bring, not to mention the fact that um, it would further disrupt and destroy the homelands of Cree and other indigenous folks in that area of Turtle Island um, and disrupt their homelands. So, you know, the, 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 the focus for, for climate strikers was really about tech as this kind of climate bomb, but also understanding ultimately that they were coming at this from an Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous rights framework, and that, you know, the young people who were organizing for Wet'suwet'en, we saw that these two things were inextricably linked and are telling that story um, through the voices of like a really diverse group of young people um, who came to take action. And there were lots of allies there of all ages, but you know, I, to me what's promising is that we can make those connections. And I think in, in the work that I do to support um, young people, they're really listening to the stories that our kind of movement elders like Colin are telling about um, the kind of work that they've done in the past. And I think more, we're just in this moment where there's just thousands of thousands of people taking action and young people stepping into leadership who uh, are coming into it with this intersectional lens and are telling these stories in such intricate um, and complex ways. And so for me, I feel like I'm so hopeful that we can move towards this convergence in, in May really localizing the context of the World Beyond War con Conference um, and tell a really powerful story about these linkages. Um, so I'm really excited about that piece of it. I, I really like what Katie's saying, that we're, we're now at what's being called an intersectional time, that there, there's so many pieces and moving parts to the resistance. One of the things I personally have learned to do, and that is stand back from this, um, not become disengaged, but stand back and say, this is the Canadian population right now, I don't think is as aware of the, the links that are there that um, it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago. 
Um, I remember marching in Ottawa around what you, what used to be called Can what is now called Cansake used to be called Armex, and uh, we had hundreds and thousands even of people. Um, Canada at that time was contemplating putting Bomark missiles and putting nuclear weapons on them. Uh, the Canadian people were very conscious of this, and there was a, quite a political fight about it. That receded. That has receded, and awareness is being rebuilt through different avenues and different ways. Um, of course, primarily and most importantly, and rightly, through the question of indigenous rights and of the rights of indigenous peoples. Having said that. There's a, there is a, uh, I think the time, it may be right, around CANSEC to begin building an awareness and a public awareness, not begin, but expand public awareness of the link between um, fossil fuels, indigenous people's rights, um, particularly to land, and uh, the whole weapons and war system that we're engaged in. Um, this won't be easy. And this, this isn't going to happen all, this, all of a sudden, but CANSEC is, is a wonderful opportunity to take this on. Um, one small example you probably know about already. Uh, we used to say back in the 60s that there was a ton of Canadian nickel in every B-52. There probably still is from Sudbury, <clears throat> Ontario. Um, and there, there probably still is. But when it comes to fossil fuel, um, you have to figure that there's almost two and a half gallons per mile used in the F-35 jet to keep it in the air. Um, the, the amount of fuel um, used by, by uh, Canadian jets, US jets, US military generally is absolutely immense. And it's all extracted from land it belongs to indigenous people. More than that, it's, it's part of a, the, the fuel and the fossil fuel industry is so intimate a part of the weapons industry that it's, it's almost inescapable. But I think the connections still need to be made among Canadians um, about these things. It's, it's not easy, but it's something that has to be done and we know it can be done. And just to make a quick note uh, for our listeners that are not Canadian, I'm an American who did not know what this was until I lived in Canada. Turtle Island is a reference to Canada. And that was what Canada was called by Indigenous people pre-colonization settlers coming in to Canada. Speaking of CANSAC and our conference happening in May, No War 2020, you both are involved in the planning and organizing of the conference and will be speaking there. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your roles leading up to and at No War 2020. Sure. Um, there's been a crew that's been already planning and doing a lot of work on it. I have, I have kind of a particular skill set that I'm really hoping will be useful for the people who are organizing. Um, w again, what I kind of referenced at the start is I really, uh, I really believe in the power of, of art in storytelling and bringing art into the kinds of actions that we do. And so if you see photos from uh, the Wet'suwet'en action that happened here in Ottawa yesterday, you'll see really powerful and beautiful art um, that brings in artwork from people like Christy Belcourt and Isaac Murdoch who do incredible work to 
really make social movements irresistible, but also really help visually tell the story of what's happening and the actions that people are taking. And so uh, what I'm really excited for is to work with the organizing team to make sure that we have the kind of, you know, big, beautiful banners and hand signs that can, when someone looks at a photo of the actions that will be taking place at CANSEC, that they'll know right away, oh, this has to do with, you know, this has to do with weapons that have to do with um, RCMP invasion of indigenous lands that has to do with um, how the how the military aids and abets the fossil fuel industry. And so, like really being able to bring in visual elements uh, to help tell that story in a powerful way. Um, I think, I feel like when I see, when I see movements, social movements taking action that really have a thoughtful uh, art element to the work that they do, it's so much easier for the general public to understand what's going on. Um, so, and it also makes it irresistible for people to get involved in, you know, you see these these kinds of uh, this kind of imagery and it and it tells a really beautiful story that people want to get involved in um, so that's one thing that I'm really excited about and so I hope that that's something that uh, organizers uh, want to include and then also uh, the other element of it too is uh, I really like planning for and supporting people to take direct action in ways that feel uh, empowering to them um, that bring people out of their comfort zones a little bit um, and that can really uh, intervene in the kind of status quo things that uh, we're going to be seeing at CANSEC. So that's another element that I'm really looking forward to as well. Um, to be honest, I haven't been uh, as involved up to this point in the pre-planning for, for CANSEC, um, mostly because um, the urgency of what's happening with Wet'suwet'en, I'm really being drawn towards that. But I hope in the weeks to come that, that I can come and be more involved with the organizing committee and uh, lend my capacity in that way. So those are two of the things that I'm thinking about. But yeah, I think there's, there's going to be lots to do. So we'll have to wait and see. Cool. Yeah, thanks for that. I'm with you and think that there's so much power in um, visual storytelling with, with movement building and even just, you know, thinking about we live in such a visual world now and translating movements and messages to social media and digital is, is really powerful. So cool. Colin, what about you? Yes, I, I mean, what Katie's saying is really, really encouraging. I make no pretense to being uh, a visual artist and I just have a lot of envy and respect for the whole process of, of building the the memes the 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 visuals the, the the whole thing is is incredibly important in this my role has been um, primarily to kind of pull together um, some of the organizing people some of the people have historically had an interest in this and continue to um, the grannies, uh, the some of the labor people, union people, and so on. <clears throat> um, but most importantly, I'm very concerned that we have an effective direct intervention in it. And I, I for many reasons, can't go into details now. But given that CANSEC's taking place over the two days, the 27th and 28th, we have the challenge ahead of us of planning how we will have a presence there that's both that's sound in terms of its messaging and effective in terms of telling government and industry that we simply don't agree with this and that there are alternatives to the weapons thing. Um, uh, and that's going to involve some kind of direct action. Um, 
and we're we're working and we're struggling with that and it's it's not the only in fact it in some ways it's it's certainly not a minor but it's it's only one element in in all of the week-long activities that are taking place um, but that's the part that i want to put and continue to put um some attention into i would like to ask a question that this is a, actually a favorite question of mine and it's one that's very difficult sometimes for anti-war activists or any activists to answer because I do think activists tend to be sort of empathetic and unselfish people. And I'm going to ask a question about yourselves. Um, I would really like to know what made each of you become an activist what made each of you become an anti-war activist. And I'm asking this for a reason. The reason is I I really believe that more people should be activists and more people would be happier if they were. And so I always want to know what is it that makes a person choose this path? Sure. Thank you. I was thinking about this last night um, uh, when I was on my way home from the action. Um, just thinking about yeah, how I got involved. I've been involved for about 10 years in, I would say, like the quote unquote climate movement. Um, so Colin has a lot more experience under his belt and I'm really excited to learn uh, from him through this. But um, I think, you know, I'm, I would consider myself a young person, but I am graduating out of that bracket uh, more quickly than I'd like. But so I got involved when I was a youth organizer. As I said, um, I was in Halifax, I was doing my master's degree at the time. And most people who are, you know, in the millennial generation or younger, like me, um, we've grown up in a world where climate change and climate chaos is a reality and, and is something, regardless of the kind of action we take now, um, will be a reality for our future and the future of our children and people to come after us. And so uh, I think a lot of young people who are, a lot of young people are living with that kind of existential dread about the future and the divestment movement in particular, the campus divestment movement uh, was a huge way for young people to be involved in climate if they were students. Um, and it brought hundreds of young people into the climate movement uh, when I started organizing. And I really came to that from a climate first perspective. Um, you know, I, have uh, had a fairly privileged upbringing and so a lot of the things that you know whether it's indigenous folks or you know migrants or whatever um is their lived experience and they kind of are born into needing to uh you know advocate for themselves and um and have to resist uh that wasn't really a reality for me until i really started to understand the severity of the climate crisis and what lay ahead so that's why I got involved with Divestal, but right around the time that I got involved was uh, when the uh, community in Elsie Pogtag, which is in uh, New Brunswick, uh, they were being, their land was being uh, looked at by um, fracked gas companies, and there was this huge uprising, um, not only in New Brunswick, but also like across the country and around the world in solidarity with with them and what was happening there so that was the the time in my life where I really started to understand the connection between um, indigenous peoples and the land that they are to take care of 
and this kind of like predatory behavior of the fossil fuel industry and our governments that support them. And it was like, it was a really challenging time in my life to like confront the things that I had been taught growing up about um, the Canadian state. Um, you know, we're taught one thing in our textbooks. And then when you hear the ex lived experiences of uh, Native people who are, have intergenerational trauma from residential schools and all of the, the ways that Canadian state has tried to erase their identity. Um, yeah, everything that I had understood about my identity as a Canadian started to come crashing down. And I think really since then um, have been trying to do the work to understand what my role can be as someone who has privilege and who is a settler um, to support the sovereignty and rights of Indigenous people um, in the context of a climate crisis that we're living in. So that's, that's for me kind of the genesis of why I got involved. Um, I've done work since then on things like environmental rights and, um, yeah, and stopping fracking in Nova Scotia because during the time it was happening in New Brunswick, they were exploring what, the possibility of doing fracking again in Nova Scotia. And so I got involved with that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I think just since then I've just grown to like kind of see it as this like bigger picture and framework that um, will be like my life's work. So I think a lot of young people today uh, have a little bit of an edge that I didn't have when I started in the climate movement because we're just seeing the total confluence of indigenous resistance and these like climate organizers who are, um, you know, erupting in mass protest around the world. So that's, that's my, that's my story. I'll pass it off to Colin. Could you just reframe the question? Oh, sure. The question was what, what originally made you become an activist? Oh my gosh. Um, when a very dear friend who's dead now in, in, uh, Thailand, we wangled our way onto an American air base, and he was a pacifist and an activist, um, turned to me and he said, well, now shall we go lie down on the runway? <laughs> and this, this was a phantom air base from where jets were and helicopters and everything were. We didn't, of course, but um, it, was, it was, was a challenge. Um, and it's, it has con consistently remained a challenge and one's constantly re-challenged. Now, I suppose the most recent one was about back in 2004, I guess, 2005. I had a chance to be in Palestine, Israel-Palestine for a while. And this is where some of the real, late in life, but some of these real pieces really came together for me because I was, I was raised... Um, in a fairly privileged context. I was raised in the oil patch in, in Calgary, in Western Canada, actually, um, from a family who was totally immersed in, in the oil industry. <clears throat> um, I didn't, I, I knew intellectually, but I didn't really have a, a, a gut level understanding of what occupation means, and what colonization means, until I ran across um, and had to face um, some rather very aggressive settlers in, in Palestine. Um, and for various reasons, that all came together and said, land, occupation, militarization, resources, surveillance, a whole lot of pieces just came together. And I said, there's only one way 
to really, you know, in, in later years is, is to encourage, be there when you can be and encourage um, this generation whose stre the stress they have to be, take on is phenomenal in terms of climate crisis, in terms of um, colonial occupation and so on. The only thing I can do at this stage is be there, act where I can. What else can I say? That's why I'm still engaged. <laughs> um, I wish as sometimes one kind of lashes one's own back and says, you can do more, you can do more, but obviously there's physical limits to that. But <clears throat> um, the support, I think the support from older people and needs to be there, but it's got to be background. Um, the leadership is coming from, as Katie says, from herself and younger people and indigenous people. I would just say to add, Colin, it, um, every time I get to speak to someone who's been doing this work for a really long time, uh, it gives me a little bit more uh, energy in my battery to, to do what we're doing. And yeah, just to, to know that you've been at it for so long is uh, hugely inspiring. Yes, it is. And um, that might be a nice thought to go out on. We are all going to be meeting in Ottawa, Canada in the end of May. Um, the four of us will be there. And um, this podcast will be listened to by people all over the world who I hope will also find their way to Ottawa. I think it's going to be something really special. So I, I think that's all I've got. I want to say thank you to um, Katie and Colin and Alex and on to Ottawa. Sounds good. We're looking forward to your being here. That's going to be great. Thanks, all. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.